0: What you're about to hear is part one of a two-part series. When I first conceived of it, I wasn't thinking about all of my notes regarding anthropomorphic horror. So what you're getting in this episode is a general overview of horror with uh, some tips and tricks about writing it in general. And in part two, which will be coming along very soon, uh, I will put my anthropomorphic spin on everything and give you some of that. Uh, So if you would like you can skip this one if you are already familiar with horror uh, or just want to get to the anthropomorphic stuff and rest assured I'll have it out soon. No. Hello and welcome to Independent Claws, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast. Episode 5, Snails, Razor Blades, The Horror. The Horror. Hi everyone, and welcome to a special Halloween edition of the show. This is about a week ahead of schedule and perhaps a little more anecdotal as well, but I wanted to put a little something out for my favorite holiday in the entire year, Halloween. I adore autumn in general, but nothing so much as the shrieks and creaks of the night in the month of October. I love haunted houses and mulled cider, bonfires, and scary movies. The first film I remember seeing in theaters with my parents that I truly, truly remember was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. I was a really small child at the time, and I don't know to this day why my parents took me to see it, but they did. I loved Freddy as a kid. My parents taped the movies off HBO. Uh, eventually, I got myself banned from watching them because in Part 2, Freddy has a line that is Help yourself, fucker. And I was prone to repeating the sounds of it. Now, I didn't understand the full sentence being spoken and I didn't actually know the word fucker at the time. I have very clear memories of the word being crocker as in Betty Crocker. Anyway, that aside, I never stopped loving horror films, and as I was growing up in the heyday of what James Rolfe of Cinemassacre calls the Bronze Age of Horror that is the 1980s and a little bit into the 90s, I found myself at ground zero for all manner of wonderful frights and chills. Interestingly, though, I didn't read much horror until later. Um, R.L. Stein's Fear Street books and the infamously illustrated Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Alvin Schwartz were the first true horror books I remember reading, excluding a chuckle-worthy book of scary tales featuring Garfield the Cat. I went on to collect books of true tales of hauntings and ghosts in my local region, uh, written by a local folklorist named uh, Charles Edwin Price, but after that I fell a little bit out of the habit of reading horror, although I never let go of watching it on film. My father was and remains a huge Stephen King fan, thus ensuring that I would not become one myself in my rebellious teenage years. Now, I tried once, and the book I picked up was The Tommyknockers, which I promptly put down again. It laid in the same spot I put it down in the house for fifteen years, gathering dust, it wasn't until I spent some time with people like Giannis J. Wolfe that I came to appreciate King's work in a general sense because of the Tommyknockers being so bad. Now, why all the backstory? Well, Because I want you to understand that the things I'm going to talk about right now are all filtered through the lens of being a horror fan, not necessarily being the greatest horror writer myself. I'm definitely not that. I'm not even close to the best in the fandom. Um, I would say based on what I've read, that honor belongs to Janis Wolf or to Voice Spider, or literally to anyone else but me. But I still love the genre, and I want to see more of it written using anthropomorphic characters. Well first, let's try to put a bit of a fine point on what horror as a genre is. This is tricky ground because horror has become so personal that trying to give it a solid form is nearly impossible. Horror is certainly the combined emotion of fear and revulsion, but that doesn't define the genre itself. According to an article in Horror Writers Association um, website at horror.org, horror as a genre is, at its best, amorphous. It is ever-changing, ever-evolving, and not constrained in the way that other genres like, say, westerns or fantasy sometimes are. In many ways, the rise of Stephen King actually struck a blow against horror as a genre, according to that article, because publishers started demanding writers follow King's formulae in order to sell. In the 1980s, there was a huge surge in horror fiction— In the 90s, the results of that were that authors sought to distance themselves from the genre, instead preferring thriller or other such words that haven't been tainted by that perception. So, what does that mean for our discussion of the genre? What is horror as a genre? Well, it doesn't get its own section in bookstores anymore. Well, the article at horror.org goes on to say that horror's salvation resulted from it becoming a chameleon and masquerading in other forms, wearing the mask of other genres. Horror, I propose, is about the emotion and evoking that feeling in the reader. What horror, the genre, does is force the reader to confront the deepest parts of themselves— The reader faces what frightens them, either directly or indirectly. Horror provides the catharsis to fear and uncertainty. Horror takes the familiar and makes it different. The way it is different provides the means by which to frighten. Horror is the search for the dark places inside each of us. So we come now to some thoughts on writing horror. I'm going to be a little abstract and a little philosophical here, so please bear with me. I'll certainly revisit the topic in the future, and you are welcome to poke and prod me via email or Twitter if you'd like me to discuss something in more detail in a future podcast. The first thing I will say regarding horror is that, like with any writing, you have to be willing to put yourself into the headspace of your characters. With horror, perhaps more than any other genre, you must be precise. One of the core elements of horror is that what is normal is suddenly abnormal. You, you cannot make the subtle contrast if you've not established normality. Imagine how much less frightening Carrie would be if she were able to use her powers at will from the outset. It would possibly make the story veer in the direction of science fiction rather than horror. King gives us an unusual situation in Mrs. White's method of raising Carrie, and mentions the times in the past when mysterious things have happened surrounding the girl like the rain of stones when she was very small. Even with those things, the rest of the reality is so grounded and so real that they stand out like glowing red embers on the page when they happen. The build is slow Carrie, growing more confident, but still the world around her goes on as normal. But as she grows confident, and her power grows, the stakes grow with it. Carrie's point of view is contrasted sharply with her nemesis, who plot her downfall at the prom. We see the preparation of Carrie, normal life. Then we see the bullies, and because we have been given glimpses of what Carrie can do— We know instinctively what she might be capable of if the bullies succeed. And when they do, and that infamous scene happens, the true horror begins. But we aren't only being horrified at the fate of Carrie's victims, or we shouldn't be. The other thing that horror does is make us look long and hard at what scares us. The monster might not be who or what we think it is. Bram Stoker uses the inversion of normality beautifully in Dracula. A uh, being an epistolary novel, normal is set out before us. Victorian businessmen conducting a foreign sale, Victorian women taking uh, uh talking about their friendships and love, but ever so slowly into the letters and the diary entries and the news articles creeps this shadowy note of discord, as if Melkor's dark influence is beginning to resonate within the symphony of Iluvatar, and if you get that reference, it just goes to prove how giant a nerd I really am. The abnormal lies just on the fringes of everything, and it begins to creep more and more into the characters' lives. It is arguable that Dracula is less terrifying to a modern reader than it would have been to a reader at the time, because society has become much different. To the Victorians, abnormality in full view would have been far more unnerving, on average. Even now, though, if you take someone's existence and slowly make things happen that are out of the ordinary, dread will begin to build in that person, again, on average. Horror films, in particular, are often criticized for their slow build. One of the chief criticisms I have seen leveled at, for example, Paranormal Activity, is that it takes so long for things to become truly menacing. Once again, the film spends the necessary time establishing normal and beginning by degrees to subvert normality. Now, remember what I said earlier about putting yourself into your character's reality because you need to ground it firmly and establish what normal is? Well, here's something that I've touched on on the podcast before, but I think it's super important to discuss. Remember that your characters are living in the real world. What do I mean by that? Well, we've all had these moments, watching a Friday the 13th or Halloween movie, where we yell at the screen for the character not to go into the basement or to get out of the house not to run upstairs. We do this because we know what's coming. We are blessed with that foresight. We have sat down to watch a horror movie. We know and expect these things to happen. Bodies are going to pile up. We know that the vampire or the masked killer or the alien creature is in the dark waiting for the victim to come to them. What many of us don't realize, or fail to realize, is that we would do the same thing in most cases. Well, no, you say, I'm not stupid enough to run upstairs when there's a serial killer on the loose, or to go into my basement without a flashlight when the power goes out to check the circuit breakers. Well, no, dear listener, I would never accuse you of being so cavalier with your life." I would say, however, that you probably don't know that the serial killer is on the loose. Remember, we as an audience member or a reader have bought tickets to or a copy of a horror movie or novel. We have that expectation. The character did not buy a ticket to be a part of a horror novel. most of the time, the bodies aren't found in a slasher film until the nearly ubiquitous corpse run, where the survivor or survivors finally start running into a series of artfully arranged victims designed to make them scream as loudly as possible. Until then, those people are living in reality. Bad things like that only happen in fiction. They're not real. We tell ourselves that, so we won't be afraid of the dark, don't we? There's nothing there. It's only my imagination. Monsters don't really exist. We do this. Our characters very likely will do the same, if we're writing them realistically. Now, that isn't to say you can't also subvert the expectations. Scream, for example, takes apart the conventions we all know about horror, through the so-called rules of the slasher genre that it is mimicking and paying homage to. But like all things in writing, my credo is that you must know the rules and conventions and be proficient in them before you begin to break or subvert them. When you're setting out to write horror, you should know from the outset that not all horror is created the same way. A story starring a Jason Voorhees-style killer is not built the same way that a haunted house story like *The Haunting of Hill House* is constructed, and both of those are different from a vampire horror story. When you sit down to write, even if you are the toughest of die-hard pantsers—that is, you know, seat of your pants writers—it pays at least to make yourself a little sticky note, reminding yourself of what subgenre of horror you're writing in. The first of these that I'm going to talk about, it used to really encompass almost all of horror literature itself. It's it's the oldest subgenre we have, and that is gothic horror. Just the phrase gothic literature calls to mind wastelands, foreboding mountains, castles or abandoned manors or plantations, dungeons, ancient graveyards, and the palpable sense of foreboding and malevolence. That evil is a force of nature that exists. Famous examples Dracula, Frankenstein. These days, gothic horror tends to be more of an aesthetic than an actual subgenre, but I feel like it warrants a mention here. Next up is psychological horror. Psychological horror does what it says on the tin the fear is generated here within the mind of the characters first and foremost and while there may be violence and horrific imagery that is secondary to the fear in the mind mental illness often plays a role in this subgenre modern examples would possibly include the silence of the lambs by thomas harris or misery by stephen king a non-horror example which to me has always been pretty horrific and one that I often return to is The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, in which a woman slowly descends into madness. Supernatural horror is a venerable old well to return to. Uh, Spooks, specters, psychics, possessions, vampires, werewolves, mummies, all fall into this broad category. This is where Stephen King's work shines, no pun intended, but also, where those gothic tropes I mentioned before cross over, Dracula is clearly a supernatural being with immense power. Now within supernatural horror is the the sub subgenre, ghost stories, and haunted house stories. These seem to me to be among the most pure horror that exists. Some of the best haunting stories never give you a firm answer or reveal what the the cause of the, the, the problems are. Life is uncertain, and the horrible things that roam the forests and dark bowers of man's domain are equally uncertain. I think from here, more than any other horror subgenre, we get that slow build to stronger and stronger action by an antagonizing spirit. Paranormal activity shows us that build on film, and there are few finer examples than that wonderful book I talk about way too often, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Science fiction horror kind of feels like cheating. Aren't we talking about subgenres of horror here? Why bring in another large chunk of the bookstore? Well, the fact is that science fiction gives us new ways to feel afraid or new twists on old favorites. As human beings, technology helps us to feel in control on some level. We have mastered nature and our environment and bent it to our will. When we lose that superiority, it's the same as if the power had gone out, and now we are forced to grope our way through the dark escape tunnel using nothing but our sense of touch and maybe, just maybe, a match that burns down way too quickly. What do we have to be afraid of when we can bend a planet's climate into something that fits our needs? When we have weapons that can obliterate any known life form before it gets within ten meters? The dark. We have the dark to fear. We have the failure of our technology to protect us. We have creatures who are immune to our efforts to hold them at bay. There is is in my estimation no greater sci-fi horror story in existence than the original Alien film, with the possible exception of John Carpenter's The Thing. There's also survival horror, which crosses into zombie territory a little, Uh, survivors of a catastrophe, fighting for their lives without the benefits of civilization to protect them. And finally, no one... Can forget straight up slasher horror, exemplified by names like Freddie Jason, Michael Myers, and Chucky Blood, viscera, and lots and lots of bodies are the hallmarks of this one. There's also body horror, uh things like the fly with Jeff Goldblum, the uh the slow transformation into this horrible monster uh, and the desire to reverse the process. And when it can't be reversed, the desire to end your existence, uh, that can be very horrific, too. You can debate each of those subgenres. You can combine, remove, add more that I missed. But the main point I want to get to here is that you need to have a firm grasp on what type of horror you're writing. Much of what works in the slashers won't play in a psychological horror story, for example. The best way to learn about what works in each subgenre is obviously to read the seminal works in that genre. For haunted house stories, The Shining and the Haunting of Hill House. Look at what the author does. Look at how they structure things. What tricks of narrative they use to build suspense. If you know what to look for, these are signposts that can guide you along your own path. And you do when you write horror, need to be true to yourself. If you want to scare others, the first thing you have to do is find the thing in your writing and in the story that you are writing about that scares you. If you find that, you will frighten your readers. One of the key things in writing horror, I've found, is walking the razor's edge between helplessness and character agency. If a character can surmount easily whatever the horror story throws at them, and then the tension and fear are just drained away. But if it is so hopeless that nothing the character would try could have any hope of success, and they choose not to try, then there's no tension, and you're likely to lose readers at that point. I didn't bring up in the subgenres because they are such a specific thing the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, which we tentatively sort of call cosmic horror. The horror in Lovecraft's most well known work comes from the insignificance of humanity and the inability of characters to do anything about it the characters in at the mountains of madness have no means by which to fight what they find but they are never without agency they are always trying even in the face of impossibility and that's the difference if 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 they are still trying even the most jaded reader will wonder if the author is going to come up with a way to let them escape what predicament they're in. It does build tension. It does provide something that can be truly, truly tension building without taking away the character's actual agency or making everything hopeless. Your protagonist has to be willing to fight for survival. On some level, that struggle has to be there. And I say survival in a very casual sense. A character fighting to stave off their own encroaching madness is still fighting for survival. It doesn't always have to be survival of the physical body, but survival of the self that is at stake. Star Trek's Borg are the horror villain of some people's nightmares because of the loss of individuality. If that scares you then that is is something you can definitely play with. It is something that takes away a person's will. Your protagonist has to be someone that on some level the reader is willing to root for. That doesn't always mean a good guy in the traditional sense, but someone that we can empathize with. Alien 3 is a deeply flawed movie. It barely qualifies as horror But some of the prisoners on Fury are characters we root for despite them being murderers, or worse. When we root for these characters, though, it's in the face of a growing feeling of being overwhelmed. They're in danger beyond what a normal person would expect. You have to make sure that we're given reasons to care about your character. If you give us paper-thin motivations or backstory then we as readers aren't going to care and the horror is going to fall flat because the consequences are so remote to us. If your protagonist barely has a name, then who cares when he's eaten in the middle of the desert by sand worms? But if he's got a name and a family and we learn how much he cares about them, that's going to set us cheering for his climbing out of that pit in the sand and running away from the creatures trying to get home, trying to get back to his daughter. The helplessness the soldiering on and trying anything to survive in the face of it will get you a lot of mileage when writing horror in the past i started noticing a trend of horror stories ending on a more or less positive outcome despite all odds the protagonists defeat or escape the evil and are allowed to return to their lives you're certainly free to write an ending this way it can be satisfying just make sure it makes sense. The trend in recent years in my experience has been that I, as an audience member or as a reader, proceed through a story thinking, it must get better. It's going to get better. And then it gets worse. And worse. And then there's a little glimmer of hope. And then everything collapses after the last-ditch effort and the protagonist loses. Let your story play out logically and don't be afraid of either ending, or of ambiguity. Let it flow logically from your story, and you'll get it right. Beta readers are absolutely essential here. One last thing I want to talk about. Since I've been talking about the dark endings, can horror be funny? It seems incompatible, doesn't it, when you really think about it? Though, comedy horror has been with us forever, Look at the Evil Dead films. Technically horror, but humorous, either unintentionally, as in the case of the first one, or deliberate, in the case of Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. Lighthearted. Shaun of the Dead is a go-to example. For books, there's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, or Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. They, They give us laughs and chuckles at the absurdity of it all. So yes, absolutely, horror can be funny. Even if it's not true horror comedy, you can relieve tension in your story with some well-placed humor. I would argue that in something so dark, comic relief, letting that tension loose for a bit so that it can ramp back up even harder, is utterly critical to success. Horror that doesn't give us the space to breathe is horror that is exhausting and sometimes very not pleasurable to read. On a final note, in writing we have the adage, show, don't tell. This is utterly critical in horror, because the less information we have, the more frightening the situation can become, up to a point. You can't give absolutely nothing or the story won't make sense. In horror, what is not seen can give some of the biggest scares. I'll reference Alien again, because we do not really get a good look at the creature through most of the movie. When we can't see what something is, we fear it. Was it the creature moving in the shadows? Or was that only the wind blowing on a tattered piece of cloth? What was that noise? Is it moving behind me? I know I've referenced a lot of films this podcast, but I did say up front this was more personal, and a lot of my original experience with horror comes from film. This has just been a sort of general overview of some basic concepts and observations. I really would like to return to the topic in the future, spend a little more time on each bit over a course of episodes. I'm certain I will have a chance to do so. In the meantime, if you would like to ask any questions or hear something addressed on the show, you can write to me at podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com or check the show out on Twitter at ClausePodcast. In a month, I'm going to be on panels at Midwest FurFest December 1st weekend, that's outside of Chicago. So if you're going to be there, be sure to say hello. Uh, I'll be reading a selection from my sci-fi horror story there in the new release readings panel, and I'll be sharing the stage in that panel with Kyle Gold, so be sure to check us out. Also, I'll be there representing the alumni of RAR, the Regional Anthropomorphic Writers' Retreat, You can check them out on the web at www.rar.community. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope it was at least somewhat helpful. Don't forget to write in with any questions. Happy Halloween, and remember, don't let anything stop you from writing.